Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Esther chapter 9. We'll also put the verses up on the screen so you can follow along that way. Um, we're finishing up our series today, and uh, the way that this one will shake out is uh, we have been wondering how this was going to come to a conclusion. This is our ninth week together in the book of Esther, and this is the, the concluding portion of the book, and so we finally get to see how all of this transpires. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at it together, and we'll think through why it's important for us today. So let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we open your word together, we pray that by your spirit, through that word, you would speak. Lord, we want to know your heart. We want to hear your voice. So Lord, we commit this time to you, and we just pray that you would have your way, please. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, to this uh, final portion easily divides into two sections. First, we find out about the relief and the experience of it in verses 1 to 19, and then verses 20 through the, the actually all the way to the end is the celebration of that relief. So let's look at it one at a time. The relief comes in verses 1 to 19, and we know as we've been working our way through this that there, there has been a conflict at the very heart of the book of Esther is a conflict between the people of God and their enemies, and specifically between two individuals. Haman, a man who is an Agagite, an enemy of the people of God, and Mordecai. And Haman has this rule about him that whenever he's seen, he's to be bowed down to, and Mordecai says, I'm not going to do that. And that makes Haman so mad that he drafts a law that says, okay, listen, I'm not just going to do harm to Mordecai, I'm going to do harm to all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And he casts a lot, he, he, uh, it's called a purr, it's like a dice back then. He casts a lot to determine the specific date in which that would be enacted. And it ended up being the 13th day of the month of Adar. This is when everybody could get their weapons out and go to war against the Jews in all the provinces of Persia. And then in the, as the story unfolds, we find out that the queen is also a Jew. Her identity has been hidden and she's related to Mordecai, and she goes to the king to try to undo this decree against her and her people. And the king hears her and responds to her and allows for her and Mordecai to draft a second letter saying, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, the Jews can assemble themselves and defend themselves. And so we've been waiting. How is this going to play out? How is this going to unfold? And here we find it in chapters 9 and 10. Relief is experience. Verse 1, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So this was going to be a day of their destruction, but now the, there's a reversal, right? Now the tables are turned. Now <clears throat> the Jews are assembling and they are able to defend themselves. And now the Jews have the upper hand. So it's a surprising feature of how this is unfolding. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators, helped the Jews because, of, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. So what you have then is the, 
the people are now fearful of the Jews. They're, they're looking at them and they're recognizing there's something about this people that is different. And there's something about this people that is troubling. And we've watched as all these events have unfolded and Mordecai went from being kind of this nuisance in the kingdom to being this second in command and fear then is gripping not only all the people in all the provinces, but also the royal officials, the satraps, the governors, everybody who has a place of power is now helping the people of God. They fought against their enemies. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hate them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed a bunch of names I cannot pronounce, but we find out who they are in verse 10. Uh, we'll skip over the names there, but it says the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So they were able to assemble, to defend themselves, to fight, and to be victorious, striking down 500 people and capturing the sons of Haman and killing them. So then we see what happens in the palace when the king finds out about it. There's a report. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. Uh, he, he finds out what happens, and then he responds to the, to the queen in verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 sons of Haman in the city of Susa. What, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? So he still doesn't know how this is going to play out in all the different places. But then, this is interesting because he says something he's been saying to the queen repeatedly, but this time it's, it's unprovoked. Or, or I should say it's unsolicited. She does not ask him to do this, but he just offers it up. Listen to this. He says, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. What would you like me to do, sweetheart? What would you like for me to do? And here he's willing to say, whatever it is that you're going to ask, I'm going to respond to it and give you what you desire. So she says, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done, an edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, <clears throat> but they did not lay hands on the plunder. So they were able to extend that provision for an additional day. Here's, here's the reasoning why. In the capital city of Susa, there was so much hostility toward the people of God, that one day was not enough to, to carry out this, this order. And so the queen asked, can we do this again tomorrow? And on the next day, first day 500, on the next day, an additional 300 individuals who are enemies of the people of God are struck down. But what happens elsewhere, verse 16 tells us, meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So everywhere in all these different places, in the faraway places within Persia, the same thing is happening. The, the Israelites, the Jews are gathering together, they're assembling, and they're fighting for their lives, and they are successful. In the capital city, it's 800, but in the faraway places, it's 75,000 in total. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. They experienced that relief from their enemies, and they intuitively threw a party. In, in Susa, however, the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days 
And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as the day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. So we're hearing about this experience that they have where they get relief from their enemies. They, they, they were threatened with death. They had a day hanging over their heads where their enemies were going to attack them and overwhelm them and destroy them, but the tables turned. And the fear of them gripped all the people, and they fought for themselves and were victorious. Now, the question we have to ask then is, why does that matter? Fascinating stuff. It's a cool story, core. but I didn't come to church to get a little history lesson. I didn't come here to find out about a faraway people in a faraway time and what happened with them. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? And one of the things to be noted here is that God is still absent. God is still absent in our story. That is surprising. I mean, if it, there are a couple places in, this, in, in the book of Esther where it would be so natural and easy to include God's activity, to just write it down. For instance, when they were fasting and praying, talking to God, but the writer omits the fact that that's what they're doing. He, he omits God from the storyline. Here, they're victorious over their enemies, and they begin to celebrate, and what would have been so normal would be to say, and this is the work of God. Just a little footnote telling us that theological reality, there is a God, he's at work, and he's doing stuff for us. But Esther is a book that is purposefully designed to help us in those moments where we say, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know if God is at work in my story. I can't see the evidence clearly enough to know he is at work for me. And that's a normal experience in the human life. If, if you're a Christian for any number of days, I think this is a pretty routine reality. We come into seasons where we look at life and we go, this is so discouraging and so disappointing and, and the circumstances are so awful. We're hated. People want to take our lives. And, and you, you interpret that and you go, and I'm not even sure what God is doing. And Esther is a book that's designed to help us in those moments. It's to help us learn to walk by faith. Because in that moment, they did not know what God was up to, but they were trying to live faithfully to him. Karen Jobes in her commentary puts it like this. In hindsight, we may understand it to be God's hand of providence. When we look back and we see how God is at work, but at the moment, God truly was unseen and his intent concealed. God's absence in Esther is true to life as we experience it, is it not? I've counseled some of you and you are in the throes of that season where you go, everything is, feels like it's stacked against me and I'm, I'm not even sure what God is doing. I'm not even sure he's here on my behalf. And this book is designed to help us learn to walk by faith, to make those hard decisions where you say, look, I have to do something here. <clears throat> I'm going to choose to do what I think God wants me to do, but I'm not sure about the outcome. Like Esther saying, I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to make a, a pretty significant request, but I might perish doing that. And if I die, I die. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about today, that we have to make these faith-filled decisions without certainty of how it's going to play out. But also, we should note that God's activity is hidden away in there. It's not plain, but it's still present. 
God is at work, and if we will pay attention to the details, we might even be able to discern it. First off, we, we recognize that the tables have turned. And again, it's not because the Jews are so formidable. It's not because they have the best army. Repeatedly throughout Scripture, we're told that they are a small and insignificant people. It's not because they're so great that everyone, that the tables have turned. And all, so that's, in my opinion, that's evidence of, hand, of the hand of God. The tables are turning, and that's the work of the Lord. And that people are fearful of them, that all the people from all the nationalities are fearing the Jews. And not just the peoples, but also the royal officials, the satraps, the governors of the provinces. They're all fearful of the people of God. And that's a feature that travels throughout the Bible, that God lays on the hearts of other people the fear of the people of God. Even the king, I think when we're reading it right, the reason why he says to Esther, hey, what do you want me to do here? I think the right way to read it is he's also been gripped by fear. He's looking at what's happening in his kingdom, and he's going, there's someone more powerful than me. What do you, what do you want me to do here, Queen Esther? And he allows for her to make that additional request of him. So God's activity is present, and certainly we, as we read the story, we see this is not coincidence. There, there are too many things that are going on very specifically for this to just be mere coincidence. This is the hand of God. So yes, we'll go through seasons where we can't discern God's activity, but if we pay attention, we will be able to trace out his hand of work in our lives. One of my favorite things to do with people is to walk them through a spiritual narrative where you begin to look at all the different things that have happened in your life and you begin to chart those out and try to put labels to them and try to understand how God is at work. And when you do that and you start to look back, you begin to realize God is very much active in our lives, shaping and molding and guiding and leading. And we need that, do we not? Well, secondly, we find in verses 20 and following that that relief is celebrated. They get relief from their enemies, but now they say, we're going to party as a result of that. And it happens intuitively, right? The day after they, they win the victory in the villages, they have a feast. And they give gifts of food and they celebrate. When uh, the, in the capital city of Susa, they do two days of fighting. And then on that following day, they have a feast. They intuitively say, we experience relief. We ought to celebrate this. This is a good thing that we have going for us. Well, now it's going to be formalized. The, the party that they had quite naturally now becomes something that becomes official. They say, let's make this an ongoing thing. That we do. It comes by way of two letters. Mordecai writes one and Esther writes one. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. In other words, he's writing a letter. He's sending it out. He's saying, look, this is what we're going to do moving forward. Every year on these days, we're going to celebrate. It's our holiday. Like, like Christians have Easter and Christmas. We have you know, holidays like that where we recognize the work of God. But in the Jewish calendar, they have this 13th day that they acknowledge as the day of relief. And then the following day... They celebrate. They have a holiday called Purim, and they celebrate 
quite wildly because they recognized that was the day when our joy came up in the face of mourning. When, when, our, when our sorrow, we were sad people, we were threatened people, we were uncertain of our future, and God turned the tables for us. And so we celebrate that reality. In verses 23 to 28, he gives a description there of why this is included in our text before us, but he's telling us, um, <clears throat> basically recapping the story. And we'll just, we'll put it up on the screen here, but we'll kind of fly through it and just highlight some of the parts of it. The Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun doing, um, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. So that's significant because <clears throat> they, they named the holiday after this seemingly circumstantial thing where Haman says, okay, what day are we going to destroy the Jews? Let's cast the lot to figure that out. And it lands on that day. And that then becomes the day that God turns the tables. So they celebrate this because <clears throat> of how God has been at work. And verse 27, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who should join them would without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. The days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So this becomes this formal holiday for them that they celebrate. You can, you can Google it right now. You can Google this holiday right now. You'll find all kinds of literature on it. It is still celebrated to this day. It's the day where the, the Jews experience relief from their enemies and they throw a raging party every year in light of it. And this is something that was then formalized saying, look, we're going to do this. All of our descendants are to do this. Anyone who joins us, we're to do this. We're to, we're to do these few different things. We're to celebrate with food, gifts of food. We're to celebrate with gifts to the poor. And we're to celebrate with joy because we experience relief. Well, Esther then also writes a letter in verses 29 to 32, and it's more of the same. She wrote the letter along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. Uh, skip down to verse 32. It says, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the record. So, she, so there's two letters, one from Mordecai, one from Esther. They're both saying, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to throw a party. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, we get a little postscript about the favor of God on Mordecai and how he was elevated in esteem and he was held in esteem by his fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So now we've got the party in light of the relief. And this party is going to be something that they're doing Every single year. So here's the, again, here's the question that we need to ask. Okay, Core, why does this matter? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us? And I want to point out a couple things that I think are very significant. A lot of the insights that I've gained along the way in this series have actually come from a lady by the name of Karen Jobes. She's a teacher out in California, a professor out in California, and she wrote a commentary on the book of Esther and she teaches a class on it out there in California. 
And one of the things that she has done with her, with her students is she, she's asking the question, as a, as a female author, as a female professor, as a female studying the book of Esther, she's asking her the question of what role do women play in leadership? And she actually asks her students to reflect on that in light of the text. And she says, who, who is the hero in the, book of, in the book of Esther? Who actually should be considered the star of the, the show? And she's asking a hard question because if you look at the details, it's both Esther and Mordecai who are repeatedly lifted up. And in fact, the end of the book simply ends on, on Mordecai's elevation. So she's asking the question. And here's where she has landed over the years of studying and teaching this. She says, maybe that's not even a good question. She says, listen, they both are absolutely necessary for different reasons. They both are absolutely necessary for different reasons. In fact, she writes it like this. The significance of Esther and Mordecai as agents of God's providential rule encourage all of us to live like Christ as we live out the calling that God has given to us, both men and women, whatever that calling may be. She's saying one of the things that she has come to realize about the book of Esther is they both had a very significant role to play. Esther had things that only she could do. Mordecai had things that only he could do. But both of them were used instrumentally by God to accomplish God's good purposes. So what we need to recognize is that God uses each and every one of us, and he gives us these assignments, and they're significant, and they're beautiful. And as a church, we try to embrace this. We try to, we try to talk about it in this way. We want every single person who's a part of our church to recognize that God has given you a unique calling and assignment. He's given you things that only you can do. The author and pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, there are some hands only you can hold. There are some people who will only listen to you. There are people who will never walk in this building, never sit and listen to a sermon from me, but you will be a radical influence in their lives. We believe that that is what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to gather together because that's significant too. We gather together and we open the word and we hear from God and we sing and celebrate together. But then we go out from here and we realize if we only spend an hour here on Sunday, the lion's share of our time is elsewhere. We better figure out how Christianity influences that. And, and if we're doing this right, then we're helping people to be equipped and trained to leave from this place, to leave from this gathering and to do life on mission. Imagine how wild that would be if you realize that God wants to co-opt your life into his mission and, and the unique calling and station that you have, whether you're well-liked like Esther or despised like Mordecai, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you, whether you have all kinds of influence or you feel like you have very little, no matter what your station in life is, God has, has given you the calling of being Christ there. The people that you work with, the people that you interact with, your, your family, God has given you the assignment that you have. Let's use that for God's glory. Everyone has a role to play. This is a feature of our church. We've been saying it from the very, very beginning. In our earliest literature, we put it like this. When we were launching as a satellite campus, we would say, every member, a minister and every member on mission. That's what we're about. Every member, a minister, we're going to try to help people recognize this is God's desire 
and every member on mission. This is not some random teaching in the Bible. It is a part of what God has been doing all along. In fact, way back in the early ages of the people of God, the, the Jews, uh, God said to the Israelites, he said, look, I'm going to make you into a kingdom of priests. And this is from the book of, of Exodus. And they said, wow, that's really fascinating. That sounds really significant, that I'm going to be your representative to the world. And here's what they said. We don't want to do that. Why don't we have Moses and Aaron do that? Because what you're describing sounds pretty scary. And so th that plan that God had that he revealed, it was just postponed, so to speak. But in the New Testament, it's picked back up. In the book of 1 Peter, talking to the church, scattered in all these different places, God says this, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In other words, God didn't give up on that plan. Now he says, that's you guys. The church is to be the people of God who are royal priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We're all meant to represent God to the watching world. So this idea is a significant one. Everyone has a role to play. You have a job to do. Let's do that job for God's glory. Well, the second thing I want you to see here as we wrap up our, our study together is the work of God must be remembered and celebrated. And this one is very obvious from our text. The work of God must be remembered and celebrated. God is at work in our lives, and we should have these routine opportunities where we just kind of sit down and we go, God has done something spectacular. We should probably feast about that. And we should give gifts of food and gifts to the poor, and we should celebrate with joy because God is at work. We need to be a people who are celebrating like the people of God. We need to recognize that this is an important feature. We never want to forget it. We never want to forget that God has done incredible things for us, that he has brought about deliverance, that he has given relief. And this, this celebration that we've been talking about, this celebration of Purim, it's, it's so important because we recognize it's the work of God. The name itself is pointing to the reality that God did something here. Yes, the, the, the lot was cast, but what does Proverbs say? The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This might have felt random and circumstantial, but when, when we understand it fully, we will, we will ascribe credit to God. He is the one who is working all things together for good. But also, this idea of celebrating Purim is relevant for, for all of us because it points to the reality that life is often disappointing. And often we feel like we're out of place. And, and often we feel like things are not going our way. And if we have a celebration that helps us to both acknowledge that, but also have hope and confidence in God, that will be very, very relevant. One scholar puts it like this, the frequent bitterness of life in, un, in the unfriendly diaspora, I don't know if it's up there for you, but it basically means in this unfriendly scattering of the people of God, it makes Purim increasingly meaningful to the Jewish people because that's just how life is. It is therefore easy to understand why a rabbi declared that even after the arrival of the Messiah, Purim would likely survive as a holiday to be observed by all mankind. A Jewish rabbi was saying, hey, this is so important for us that he imagined that even after the Messiah came, this would still be something that people would do. And not just the Jewish people, but all people. Guess what, friends? That rabbi was on to something. 
The Messiah has come, and we ought to celebrate Purim. We ought to celebrate the fact that God is able to turn the tables and bring relief from our enemies. We ought to look at the events of the book of Esther and recognize these point beyond themselves. These aren't just about Esther and Mordecai and Haman and the Jews. This is a story that's for us. This is a story that points beyond itself to the ultimate salvation that God has wrought in his son. Karen Jobes again, she says, throughout history, the book of Esther has been read not as an isolated event in in Jewish history, but as symbolizing the final salvation of God's people at the end of time. This book is a preview of coming attractions, that God one day is going to bring about salvation where the tables will be turned and the enemies will be overruled. And he has done that in the sending of his son. And we, we recognize that, that Jesus has come and he has lived and died in our place. But what he was doing was he was defeating the greatest enemies that we have, death, sin, evil, and the devil. And he has disarmed those realities, and one day he'll come back and put a finality to it, that he will make all things new and all things right. And in the meantime, we should celebrate. We should celebrate the work of God. We should recognize that death no longer hangs over our heads. My, my boy Harrison, he's out with the kids right now, but he's, he's seven years old, and recently he made a decision to make Jesus his Lord and Savior. He became a Christian. He sat down with Ash and I. I was actually down in my office, and Ash is like, Cor, you need to come up right now. I was like, oh, I don't know what's happening. I come up, Harrison's talking about becoming a Christian. We talked through it, and he, he's all excited about it, and um, just his big old goofy grin on his face. I love it. But then the other day he says, Dad, He's asking me all these hard questions. He's asking about death. And I say, hey, bud, as a Christian, you don't even have to worry about that anymore. Death no longer has the final say. He's like, what? Yeah, Jesus beat death. So Jesus died. They hung him on a cross. But he came back from the dead, and he promised that those who believe in him will have the same experience. You don't have to even worry about death. He's like, No way, like getting so excited about it. But that's what we need to be as Christians, people who recognize that Jesus has defeated death and sin and evil and the devil, and therefore we should celebrate. We should have a feast. We should give gifts of food and gifts to the poor, and we should be a people who recognize the work of God in our world. He is a good God. He has sent his son, and I hope that you would believe in him and trust in him and celebrate him. Let's pray right now. Lord, we thank you so, so much for your saving work. We thank you for the relief that we can experience. We live in in a broken world, full of disappointment, full of hardship, full of uncertainty. But your scripture repeatedly reminds us that you are at work for our good. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and come back from the grave to show us that even death itself no longer has a sting to it. It no longer can be victorious over us. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we too will rise like he rose. So Lord, help us to celebrate the relief that you offer us in the good news of the gospel. Help us to be people who recognize that it is a good idea to get together often and remember your work. 
by celebrating together. And that's what we're doing right now. As a church family, we've gathered here on this Sunday morning, on this Lord's Day, to say, you are good. And so we're going to worship you, and we're going to take communion in light of these realities. We're going to reflect and remember the work that you performed for us. We thank you for that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.